Hello everyone, welcome to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. My name is Avid Khan and I talk about how you can start, run and sell a bootstrap business. This episode is called A Unified Voice, Staying Consistent When You Grow. Let's get started. At a certain point, it won't just be you talking to your customers anymore. Your employees will be the first touch points for customer interactions and co-founders and directors and partners and other businesses. What once was a unified voice, your voice, is now a chorus. And if you want to have a company that's consistent and aligned, you'll need to be the conductor of the chorus. And the reason that a chorus of a hundred singers or more can create incredibly elegant harmonies is that they have a central source of truth. A score written in a commonly readable music notation and then a conductor to help them keep in sync. You will need to be all of that and provide all of that for your employees and for your co-founders. So how do you build a source of truth? Well, you create a vision and mission document. You set the tone by explaining the why and the how in your own authentic voice. This document will be the point of reference for any question that could crop up in the future. Whenever an employee, a co-founder, or even a potential acquirer needs to learn about the voice of your business, you can refer them to this write-up, as it'll settle any dispute and answer any question. Write it down in extensive prose. It's just really write a big article. If you, if you want to, or even create a video in which you explain your motivation and your aspirations. Video might be even more engaging and it might be a, a really nice way of expressing your personal affection for the topic, right? If, if you can be expressive in a video and you can really, really show what you like and what's important to you, then people will find this infectious and they will really attempt to recreate that in their own communication. So whatever you do, if you write it, if you record an audio version, a podcast, just uh, you reading messages or just telling people um, what the tone and the whole point of your business is, whatever you do, share it with everybody who joins the company. Make it clear to them that this is the source of truth whenever somebody wonders how you should communicate the means and the goals of the business. At Feedback Panda, I stated in that document something along the lines of at Feedback Panda, we want to be we want to enable our teachers who are likely to come from fragile financial backgrounds. When they are in trouble, we help them teach more by using our product until they can catch up. And that is a very clear message, right? If you say, we know that our teachers are not the best paid professionals in the world, we know that they may sometimes run into trouble. And if you make that a clear message that you communicate with everybody in the company, then if some customer service representative in your company ever gets tasked with deciding if a customer should get a few weeks extension because their credit card is overdrawn or if they should cut off their service, well, then you have, don't have to think twice after reading this paragraph or listening to it, right? You know exactly that the whole point of the business is to enable teachers to catch up. So you extend their um, account or their subscription for a month to give them the time. So this makes it much easier. And that's how you set the tone. It's not just the tone in terms of language. It's actually also the tone um, on an empathetic level. And we outlined where our desire to help online teachers um, came from, where how we understood the product to help and enable them, and what we expected their goals and aspirations to be. 
our customers' uh, aspirations and their goals. So in the mission and vision document, the most important topic to cover is your relationship with your customers. Are you a friend? Are you a colleague? Are you a teacher? Do you teach them? Do you help them with work that they would otherwise have to do themselves? So are are you serving them? You're always serving them, but are you subservient or are you more in a mentor position? And you can make this fairly clear because you as the founder will understand what kind of relationship you have with your customers. And in a way, that document then reflects your internal positioning, not the external one in the market, but your internal one in your company. Depending on how you understand and how you communicate your relationship with your customers, your actions and your goals will change. So giving your employees and partners the opportunity to see how you understand yourself and your business is very valuable to prevent misunderstandings and misaligned expectations. Also, both inside your business and in the interactions with your customers. So let's talk about taking care of the how for all of this. First off, I always recommend in almost any niche to echo the voice of your customers. Talk about them as they would talk among themselves. Foster an understanding of the language used in the industry that you serve. Your customer service people should be able to understand clearly what your customers are trying to do and be just as easily understood by people who work in that industry. This is particularly helpful with new hires in fields that interact a lot with customers like customer service or sales. Giving those people, those employees of yours, a glimpse into the world of your customers is very helpful. And for this, just consider describing in a page or two how your customers use your product and how they would solve their problem if they didn't have it. So contextualize the workflow of your customers for those employees who may not know much about your industry just yet. Give them the opportunity to look into the tribal niche communities. Just really allow them to see how people communicate to get a feeling for the communication patterns that dominate your customer base. And it's also very important at this point to to point out that communication is really a language thing. It's it's a wording thing often enough. Sometimes, um, I I remember at Feedback Panda, we had a number of customers um, that were not too tech-savvy but they were just kind of trying to get along. They were online teachers. They had to to use a laptop to teach. They had to use technology that they may not have used before in their classroom kind of teaching that they may have done um, either before or as a second job now. They were new to tech. They were new to teaching online. And the words that they used to describe certain things were not the words that I would have used. Like I would call something the user interface. I would call something like a, a modal window or a dialogue or a um, cancellation button. Right? You're all these little things that as a developer, I understand innately to be part of a piece of software. It wasn't as easy for people who ha- had used a computer maybe for half a year on, in a professional setting. So it makes a lot of sense to dive deeply into those niche communities, into the, the tribes that already may exist and likely do for your customer base and just take some sort of senses on how they communicate, how they phrase the certain things. And whenever you read something that you think, oh, I would phrase this differently, that is a great opportunity for you to learn how to communicate with your customers. Because if they don't talk about your a system dialogue in, in your software, as a system dialogue, but they just call it the options or the configurations, then this is the kind of wording that you might need to use both in your direct customer communication and 
in all the writing that you're doing in your knowledge base and in the um, the emails that you send out, new features, your descriptions, in-app help, in-app uh, messaging, you will need to make sure that you use the commonly used terms in the actual language that your customers use. And there's really no other way than by actually listening to how they communicate, maybe both with you in customer service communication and amongst themselves, which is an observational method that you will need to do. You will need to really, every now and then, spend an hour or two reading messages about your product, about other products, and see how, what vocabulary people use. And when you notice there's a divergence between what you would say and what they would say, maybe note it down. Maybe make a document of... It's almost a translation, right? You, you translate your own language into your customer's language. At some point, that will merge, but it will take some work to get you to that point. So that's it's an important part because if you communicate in a way that your customers don't understand, your churn will be higher, people will get frustrated easier. They will get frustrated to a point where they will communicate this within the community that you are somebody who doesn't understand them, which is the worst kind of thing that can happen to you. That you're marked as a person that is not part of the niche community, that is trying to sell them something, but is not part of the tribe. So you want to not get into that position and the easiest way is by understanding and speaking the same way as your customers so that is while you are in the same market segment let's talk about what happens when you move up market and the language of the industry changes you will need to adapt right the mission and vision document is not an operations manual it's also not set in stone it's a spiritual guide in some way change into a new con consistency i guess by revisiting the vision and mission documents and educate your employees about the differences they're likely to encounter. And never lose track of your original vision, but focus on where you are at this moment. Because if you change your market, you will need to change your language. You will need to change your internal positioning, which this whole um, th the thing we've been doing here is all about, right? Figuring out from where you act, where you want to go and how you want to communicate. You will also need to change your external positioning um, for which I recommend listening to a podcast I did a couple of weeks ago on positioning. Um, and there's, yeah, it needs to be synchronized. And you will need to make sure that the, the documents that you are providing are flexible over time because things will change both externally and internally. And you will need to make sure that every new person that gets hired or every new contractor that you onboard, or even if you sell the business, the people who take over the business get the most recent kind of communication strategy that you can offer them because that will also heavily impact how easy the transition of the business will be the less you need to teach people in person the better because if they have these documents where you clearly lay out how stuff is going to work and how stuff is supposed to work the easier for them it is to take it over um, we'll talk about this later but um, first of the whole topic of what i just talked about i've written about this and obviously many more in my book, Zero to Sold. You can purchase that from Amazon and Gumroad and you'll find out more on zerotosoldbook.com. So thanks for checking it out. If you're interested in the journey of me self-publishing the book, you'll be happy to hear that I sold 2,000 books as of, I think, a couple days ago, um, two months into launching the book. I published monthly sales figures and other updates on Twitter. It's been an amazing journey and I'm extremely grateful for everybody who went on it with me and is still on it with me at this moment. So thank you for that. Um, today, I want to do something new. I want to respond to a few questions that were sent in by listeners. 
Um, they were sent in via Twitter at this point, but I just added a widget to the website, um, the Bootstrap Founder blog, where you can actually send in audio recordings of your questions that you can then have me answer the next week or in one of the next episodes. So if you want to do that, please go to thebootstrapfounder.com slash podcast and send in your question. It can be about anything. It can be about today's episode. It can be about the past episode or any other topic that's related to bootstrapping or duck farming. That's also interesting, but you know, keep it at bootstrapping, I guess. And I will respond to it. So just send it in and you, you can hear yourself uh, in the next couple of weeks. So thanks for that. Let, let's, let's start with the questions I got for today. So Aaron asked, what steps do you recommend at the beginning of a company or an asset to later reduce friction for due diligence and therefore sale of said company or asset? So yeah, that's, that's a very important thing. Like making sure that from the beginning, the business and the internal structure of the business are laid out in a way that reduce friction during due diligence. If you want to sell your company and and the secret, I guess, to many successful SaaS businesses is that they are supposedly sellable companies. So same with Feedback Panda, right? We built a sellable company from the beginning because I had read Built to Sell by John Warlow and um, the E-Myth, I guess, and the 4-Hour Week and all these kind of books that suggested that, hey, at some point you might want to get rid of your business. And if you want to be able to do this quickly and without much hassle, you want to build your business as if it should be ready to be sold at any given time. And a, a good business is always sellable. So making a business sellable from the beginning also means turning it into a good business, right? And so we had this vision of having, having Feature Panda to be sellable at all times, which we had. And we did this in a, in a couple of ways. I'm going to talk about four or I guess three important topics here. One of them is account separation. The other one is credential consolidation. And the third one is document location. Just as a um, broad overview, I'm going to go through all of them for a couple of seconds here. If you want to make the due diligence process easy, obviously what you should be doing is to fulfill the expectations of the business that is going to acquire you. And uh, the, the expectations of such a business are absolute transparency. It's clearly structured documents and it's separation of private and business documents. That's extremely important. And let's start with the last one. Let's start with separation because you should, from the beginning, keep two things very clearly separated. The first one is financial accounts. Your personal finances and the finances of the business should, if you can, be completely separate before you even make your first dollar. We did that because I'm, I guess because I'm German and I think um, the moment you have to deal with German tax authorities and, and German, um, yeah, just the, the kind of, you know, or bureaucracy systems that we have here, it gets complicated if you mix these things. So we, from the beginning, had a business account. We set one up with a bank that is a business bank and we hooked that into Stripe. So the first payment that ever went into Feedback Panda or the, the first kind of subscription that it was ever paid for went onto this account that was set up for the business. Never touched any of our personal bank accounts, nothing we did. I mean, a couple of services we paid from our personal bank accounts in the beginning, but as soon as we had the business bank account, we switched it over. And it was, it's also better, I guess, in terms of account security 
because for business accounts, if you have a credit card, um, first off, they will have fraud protection systems that are mostly improved compared to the ones that private banks or their personal bank accounts have. This might be different now. It might also be at the same level at this point. But the important part is if you have a business account, you have somebody who's responsible to make sure you're fine. So you have somebody you can call. You have a either a representative at the bank or the bank has um, emergency numbers that will be reliable and they will be there for you. You're not going to be put on hold for 30 minutes to be able to cancel your card if you find any fraud on your system. And if there is fraud that they detect, they will call you instead of just sending you some weird email that may go into your spam folder, right? So business bank account, keep those things separate from the beginning. Financial things should never be mixed. And if they mix, try to untangle them as quickly as you can. And once you sell, everything should be untangled, right? There shouldn't be anything going through your personal bank account the moment you do due diligence or somebody does due diligence on your business. That is a red flag for them because all of a sudden they don't own the connectivity between like the payment and the service anymore. If they have a chance to quickly switch it, that may be fine, which in our case that happened too, right? Obviously, when somebody takes over your business, the first thing that needs to be done is for all the payment sources to be switched, right? When our credit card was, now their credit card is. But if there's something more complicated, if you have a long-term contract maybe that is going through like a, a bank transfer, weird little things, that can really trip up the acquisition. So financial accounts, keep them separate. The second one, which might be even more important just for the operational capacity of an acquisition, is to keep your service accounts separate. That means you don't log in to, I don't know, Heroku or your database provider or AWS with your personal account. Like, I'm not going to use my Amazon account that I use for shopping to pay for the, the AWS hosting or to log in that account even. That is a, a big problem because the moment you have to transfer this over, people will expect you to hand over your email and your password and for all the accounts that you use. And if some of those are your personal account, I don't think you want to do that. I don't th- I think you want to hand over your email and your personal passport, a password to a, a private equity company or somebody else who acquired you. So keep those things separate and it just really makes everything easier. The moment you have a domain for your project, the moment you have a like a business name and all these things, you just set up an, an admin at or some name like accounts at your domain.com account through Google, I guess. And then you use that to log into all of the services that you want to be using in the future. You create a new account on AWS. You create a new account on Heroku. You may even want to use your login with Google through this account into all the other services that you use. We did this. And with Feedback Panda, we had our Feedback Panda accounts and they logged into all of the services we used. Auth0 and Stripe and, you know, all these things that you kind of attach to your product in third-party services should be logged in with your professional account that you made particularly for your business. So that makes it easier when we come to the next point, which I, I said is credential consolidation, right? If you log into most of your services using one Google account, well, that's gonna make it so much easier to transfer the business because then all you really need to share with them is the email and the password for your Google account. Maybe if you have a two-factor authentication set up, you need to switch that over to a new phone, but that's pretty much it. And in fact, that is how most SaaS businesses do their transition. They have all their credentials 
in one place. They put all their credentials in a one password vault or in a secure document and put that into a Dropbox or hand it in, like in an encrypted PDF file or something. It's in one place. I would always suggest going with a secure vault in one of the many password services that exist. But it is important to have all of these in one place because then when you do the transition, you don't need to hand over every single credential. You pretty much only need to invite somebody into your vault and have hand over administrative access. It's pretty much invite one email, set one flag somewhere, and they have access to all your credentials. You just handed over your whole business with one thing, in one step. And that is what credential consolidation allows you. Because once you have all of these things in a secure location, well, you can just hand them over easily. That makes the due diligence extremely easy because you can, I mean, nobody's going to look into your passports for due diligence, but the transition process, at least, is just going to be a snap. You can do this in under 10 minutes, maybe even a couple seconds. So that will allow you to really, really make the transition process have a lot less friction because you don't need to like remember where everything went because it's already been in there. And it's also going to make your own personal operations much easier because all of a sudden, if you, if you want to log into a service, well, I don't know, what did I use? <clears throat> it's very likely that you're going to be using your Google login that you had, your business account. Or if you can find it, well, you just go into your 1Password vault. And if you've been careful and added every single login, you'll find it in there. So having this in place is also peace of mind for you particularly when you need to log into a system and a service that you don't often use, but that's still critical, like backup systems, right? Backup technologies or um, secure signing tools that you use once in a blue moon, but it's important for business transactions, like signing contracts with partners and stuff. If you have all of this in one place, well, you know it's going to be there. So credential consolidation is important. And we already kind of talked about document location, but there will be other documents that you will need to hand over that you will need to show in a due diligence process. I'm thinking about the PNL sheet, um, profit and loss statement. I'm thinking about the thing I talked about earlier, the mission and vision document and your operations manual, your standard operating procedures. If you have all of these things, let's say in a, in a Google Drive, because they're all Google documents, or if you have all of them in a Dropbox, because they are all, I don't know, Word files or something like this, Excel sheets, I don't know, then having this in a central location makes the pr- process of transitioning and due diligence much easier. So um, let's quickly summarize this. Account separation for financial accounts and service accounts. Credential consolidation for your passwords and all the, the access credentials that you use and document location, which is also a kind of a consolidation approach. Keep all of your important documents, not just the ones used in due diligence, but also your business documents, like the um, founding documents of the of the business and maybe your invoices that, that you keep and collect, maybe your tax records, all of these things in one place. Makes it super easy to transition makes it extremely easy to hand over and will reduce friction significantly. So thanks, Aaron, for the question. Another question came from Danny. He has a validation question. I I really like that because validation is something that's dear to my heart. So here we go. He wonders how many people you should be validating your problems with before you take it as a signal that it's a problem worth exploring more. That question is interesting because... The one problem that I see with validation all over the place it is that it can be overdone 
so people can waste too much time. They can validate for too long and ask too many people. Or it can be underdone, which means they ask too few people and make too many assumptions that don't go validated. And most founders undervalidate and then compensate with either hard work that's often pointless or pivots because they're required. And it is extremely hard to give you a number because numbers are always specific to the unique aspects of the business that we're talking about. But let's say we're talking about a niche bootstrap business, like a niche audience of a couple thousand, maybe a couple tens of thousands of people. I would suggest that you ask at least 12 and maybe not more than 20 people from in most niche audiences. If you have a much larger audience, you will need to talk to more people. And um, the number is fairly arbitrary. The, the idea is you getting a signal or you're getting the noise, right? You, you want to understand that, are, am I getting a signal here? Is there something in, in my validation um, that people actually pick up on or that I pick up on that people talk to me about? Or am I really just listening to noise and there is nothing here for me to validate? It is invalidated. So you want to you be able to, to understand if you're getting signal or if you're getting noise. And I think talking to 12 to 20 people will give you this kind of initial insight. What I think is very important is that you keep uh, an eye on the time frame of your validation. Because I've been talking about validation a lot in Zero to Salt. Like the, the whole first half of the book is all about the first initial preparation stage and the kinds of validation you can do. And you can do audience validation, figuring out if these are the people you want to help. You can do problem critical problem validation, figuring out which of the problems is the most critical. You can do solution validation, which is... Um, is the thing that I want to build as a solution a thing that will actually solve this problem for people or am I solving the right problem the wrong way? And then there's product validation, which is, am I building this in the right medium? Can people actually use the specific implementation of what I'm building in their workflow and will that solve that problem? So there's at least four kinds of validation. And I guess for once you, you're running your business, you want to do this for every new major feature you do, right? So validation is always um, a, a multi-step approach and it could take some time. So keep the time frame slim for each of these validation cycles. I would suggest two weeks per validation cycle, particularly in the beginning, max. And you want to prevent what I would call validation procrastination because you can validate all year long and you can figure out the perfect problem to solve and the perfect solution, the perfect product for the perfect audience and they're never built because you're always just validating. So 12 to 20 people keep each validation cycle, audience problem, solution, and product, and for each feature for to two weeks each and talk to as many people as you can in those two weeks. Figure out if you get a signal or if you just get noise. And that would be my, my kind of yeah the, the, the framework in which I would act. Let's talk quickly about the risks here. Because there's a couple of risks in picking these people. One is that you just ask too few people and the signals that you're getting are just really isolated kind of lighthouse beacon signals where else there would just be fog, right? People, some people are really, really intense in what they want. And if they're not a representative of their community, if they're an outlier, then you're pretty much talking to just the outliers. And unless those outliers are your niche, which they could be, but likely aren't, then the data you're getting on this is just heavily skewed. 
And the same goes for talking to enough people, but they are too randomly picked. They are both, I don't know, like if you if you have an audience of software engineers and you want to build a product, well, who do you ask? Let's say you, you pick 12 engineers at random. What's the chance that you have just beginners, but your tool would be something for experts? Or the other way around, you want to build something that enables people to get into software engineering, but you're only talking to people who have been building software for decades, right? That would be uh, an important part of the selection of the people you talk to. And I guess they can be, both be too random where you don't really get the representative group of people that you want to talk to, or they can be too similar. Like I just said, you want to speak to experts, but you only get people who are not just experts yet. So the risk in just picking 12 to 20 is that you pick the wrong 12 to 20. And that's something you just need to learn, something you need to figure out which I guess means that for your first project, you should talk to more people, I guess, um, than just 12, just to figure out how you can detect if those people are the right people to talk to. And this whole subject is something that others have expertly written about. My big reading tip here is to read The Mom Test, the book by Rob Fitzpatrick. And he explains all of this in detail and especially Things like talking to the same versus different people and how to talk to people, what questions to ask, what questions not to ask. The mom test is really, really good. This will help you significantly with validation, just the approach, both in terms of what to ask and whom to ask. So follow Rob Fitzpatrick on Twitter, follow him on YouTube. He has been has been providing a lot of good material on YouTube about talking to customers and customer exploration. So um, that will get you further, but yeah. Um, thanks, Danny, for the question. Validation is always something interesting for me to talk about. Finally, a third and the last question for today, Bombay Boy has a question on the Feedback Panda tech stack and why the Elixir programming language was a great language to single-handedly code a SaaS and the resources I used to get better. And all right, Elixir, the programming language, was great for me to build Feedback Panda. Because I had just come out of a job where I had worked with Elixir professionally as a dev for two years. I worked with it every single day of the week. It was good for a SaaS because I could use it quickly without needing to learn much more. I had the basics down. And I think that every developer has such a language. For some, it's JavaScript, PHP, Ruby, or even Java, like any kind of programming language that you're good at. One of the most important points here is to see the programming language you use, and particularly for the backend, I guess, because in the front end you always deal with JavaScript now, but you know, the the kind of deep logic that you have to build for your SaaS is something that might one day be completely swapped out for something else. It might, it might not be. And the important part is that it matters very little right now when you're just starting out. For me, it was Elixir in 2017. For prior project that I worked on back in 2014, it was JavaScript on Node.js on the backend, because that's what I was good at back then. I, I always pick the thing that I currently am using most because that will make it easier. And that might just make me faster as a developer. And the stack matters really little when you're starting. It gets a bit more important later at scale, and it always makes sense to pick something that is useful for that, that can scale well. But honestly, most popular frameworks out there can handle the workload of a niche bootstrap SaaS pretty well at any scale. Like if you build something that all of a sudden has millions of customers in the B2B enterprise space, then you can probably afford 
to have somebody look into your tech and build something more sturdy and more scalable. But what, what is important for you right now is that you pick the right tech for you. You need to be able to make good choices and build features and build stuff quickly. And in Zero to Soul, I recommend three approaches for this. There's the founder technology fit, there's purpose technology fit, and tech durability. Founder tech fit, founder technology fit means that you have an easy time building with the language. You have experience or you're good enough so you could quickly learn how to do stuff. You've found out where to look for resources. You found the online communities. That's founder technology fit. And you enjoy it. It's also important. Purpose technology fit means that your tech of choice will allow you to do everything you want to build and not just some parts. One of the examples I give here is always NoSQL, like MongoDB and, and these kind of things. And that always comes to mind because it's actually a great technology for certain kinds of data. If you work with JSON data and um, flexible data schemes and stuff, it's great. But if you need relationships in your database, because you have pretty much your accounts and accounts of projects and projects have items and items have, you know, the relational database, then NoSQL might not work that well for you. And the same goes for languages. I picked Elixir because I knew that it was amazing at handling parallel requests. I just used it for two years building a platform for IoT sensors that could send data at any time. So we knew that Elixir was great for that, which is why it was used, which is why I learned the language. And having built with it, I understood that it was great for parallel requests. And our customers would all use our software at the exact same time, predictably every half hour, because they would teach for 25 minutes and then they had a five minute break and they would teach for 25 minutes and then they had a five minute break. So within one hour, we would have two five minute windows where everybody would use a product. So instead of going with a language or a framework that had trouble with this, I picked Elixir because I knew it would deal with this well. So it is, um, yeah, that's what purpose technology fit is to me. You can, most programming languages, most frameworks, most systems have something that they were built to, to build, build for, right? There was something that they were built for in the past. And for Elixir, which is a modern take on the Erlang language, that was built by, by Sony Ericsson to, to um, power the phone switching network. Like it was literally built for an extremely parallel, extremely high throughput system. So it's not a bad choice for a high throughput five minute window of extremely parallel connections. And that was one of the reasons why I picked it. Could have went with Node.js. I still can uh, do JavaScript programming in the backend, but I didn't. I picked the other one. I picked the one that I found was more flexible, allowed me to do more things and more easily for myself. Um, not to say that if you pick Node.js for a backend language, you would not have an easy time, but just really with my personal experience, Elixir was the better choice. And it also, and that's the third point, had a technology durability advantage. Because usually popular tech is a good choice. Lots of people use it, test it, fix it, extend it. So if you just look for languages with a vibrant active community and a large amount of libraries that are widely used, then you're pretty much good. And if you pick Ruby on Rails today or Laravel or Elixir Phoenix even, those are all perfectly valid choices for frameworks. The longer something has been around, it is still popular. And just looking at Rails, it, the better. Because you will find there's a big community where people can teach you the things you don't know. There's a big amount of... Um, a huge amount of libraries and 
tutorials on this on the web. There's courses, there's books. Like all of this is so much easier if there's a vibrant and active community. And for Elixir, that was easy because the Elixir community is extremely active. It was still fairly small, but it was extremely active. And there were projects coming um, out in the open source world every week that were kind of helping people to integrate other interesting tools or to solve problems in, a, in an interesting way. So that was a very easy choice for me with Elixir, but you will probably find this with many, many popular systems. But if you want to make, if you want to build a SaaS and you have one or two programming languages that you're already good at, pick them, choose those and commit to that for now. Because you can always pick something else later. You can switch it out. It will cost you. It will cost you time. It will cost you effort. But the thing is, if you get to that point, then there's already value in your business. And then it's valuable to make the change, to make it more scalable. You don't need to optimize prematurely. So pick the thing that you're comfortable with, pick the thing that is popular, pick the thing that is well-supported and has a community, and you'll be fine. Again, you can find more about this in my book in a chapter that I called Making Tech Choices Don't Add Risk to a Risky Business, which is the theme, right? Try to minimize risk. And you'll find lots more um, about making these kind of tech choices and why I chose the stack that I chose for Feedback Panda. So thank you for the question. And that's it for today. If you want to send in a question for me to answer on the show, please head over to thebootstrapfounder.com slash podcast and record your message. Thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder podcast today. You can find me on Twitter at Avid Kahl and you can check out the blog at thebootstrapfounder.com. You can find my book Zero to Sold at zerotosoldbook.com. If you got any questions about the episode, reach out on Twitter or send an email or voice message. Um, I'm reachable at arvid at thebootstrapfounder.com. If you want to support me or the Bootstrap Founder podcast, please leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. It will help other founders and founders to be to find the podcast and learn more about starting, running, and selling their bootstrap businesses. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.